all profit is value extraction. And that means that all profit is theft from you. Corporate America is on welfare, and they we've got to get them off welfare. Welcome to Cars and Comrades, your leftist car podcast. My name is Bryant, and we've got Connor and Zach here today. How are you guys doing? Doing well. Pretty good. Nice. And today we're going to wrap up my book report on Unsafe at Any Speed by Ralph Nader. I don't I don't think we'll get into uh, much more than that in this episode, but probably next episode we'll do a little summation of the life and times of Ralph Nader, some of the other things that he got up to as far as uh, legislation and running for office. And then um, might have a little segment on the experimental safety vehicle program in the 1970s, which was an interesting um, offshoot of, of his advocacy. But, uh, but first we're going to catch up and catch up on our project cars and see what everyone's been doing. And, um, I don't remember uh, if we decided what order we were going in. We like didn't decide first. anything. I feel like I went first last time. Okay. That's what I remember. Anyway. So, Brian, you're first. Okay. I'll, I'll go first then. So, I think I talked about this a few months ago, but I was thinking of, at one point, buying a different car to replace my Sabaru. And uh, one of the candidates I was thinking of was the Chevy uh, Chevy Volt hybrid. Oof, that is, I would advise against that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I didn't know that was a candidate. I would have. Uh... <laughs> but uh, wasn't going to say so. Um, so yeah, I mean that was more because I I had a longer commute. It was more in the city. And it was kind of, you know, aggravating to be in stop and go traffic with a manual transmission and, you know, be getting like less, not that great mileage, you know? I feel like there's, I feel like a Prius would be a much better option, honestly. And I feel yeah. like there was a few other, like, there, there's like the regular Prius, but then I think like the second generation or third or whatever, a few years later, like they had some other like hatchback versions and stuff that were pretty decent. I feel like that's probably better than a Volt. Yeah, I mean, the main reason I was thinking a Volt is because it's basically the cheapest plug-in hybrid that you can buy. Oh, it's, uh, is it even a, is, is it a hybrid? I thought it was a full a full EV. No, it's it's a hybrid. It's got like a 1.3 liter four-cylinder. Um, and uh, I respect it, it, it even less now. Jesus. <laughs> I think like the battery replacement on those things is like cost more than the car. Yeah. Um, so like buying them used is like, uh, which is going to be a problem for a lot of cars in the near future. I'm sure. But yeah. Yeah. But right now my commute is only like nine miles each way. So it's not as big a deal and I'm not in stop and go traffic. Um, I did the math and it would take me like, I think around 10 years to, to like, of of like you know 
um, buying gas for my my Sabaru to like make up the difference in um, you know mileage and whatnot to actually pay for the the cost of buying the um, the Volt. But I hold did on, go. Hold on. I think you said that backwards. So you would yeah. take you ten years of driving the Volt to make yeah. up for. Oh man, yeah, that's too long because it is not going to last that long. <laughs> well, I don't know if my Sabaru is either. But uh, you could buy but... another Sabaru and still it would cost less. <laughs> yeah, probably. But I did. There was a uh, a car dealership just like two miles away from my house that had a Volt for sale. And I'm like, you know, fuck it. I'll go down and test drive it. Um, so I did. And my verdict is it's less roomy than a, um, well, than a Sabru, but also like less roomy than a Prius. It has worse visibility than a Prius. Yep. The interior fit and finish is very like, it's very Chevy. I would, it's very Chevy, you know, (laughs) of its time period. It's probably the nicest Chevy from like 2010 that you're going to find. That's a low uh, fucking bar. Yeah, that's when, again, you're saying like, oh, I'm thinking about getting a Volt. I'm like, that's a Chevy, my dude. I wouldn't, I wouldn't touch that. Yeah. But um, points in its favor, it does, it does have decent power off the line. It does have decent like ride and handling and decent brakes and everything. So like, I can see myself if, if the Sabaru blows up or gets rear-ended and mangled and whatnot and totaled i could see myself getting one of these but i'd be looking at other stuff too i was also thinking of a mazda speed 3 or a fiesta Ooh, st that is or so much like that. so much cooler oh my <laughs> lord yeah. that's not even close yeah Plus, but the like bolt is an uggo man that does not a <laughs> mazda speed 3 looks cool the what was the other one he said of uh, focus st fiesta st fiesta st looks cool ish also, it's a Ford, so that's a little, little iffy, but um, <laughs> way cool. A Volt is an ugly, ugly vehicle. Yeah. Uh, I kind of like the way the Volt looks, but I don't know. Maybe I'm a weirdo. Yeah, I mean, hey, if you like it, you like it. Yeah. I mean, it's as, okay. as, as weird tastes, there's nothing. Yeah. It. I, th- I think it looks better than most hybrid cars. I'll say that. I think it looks better than Prius. Yeah, the Prius but... is pretty ugly. I'm not going <laughs> to lie. There's, I mean, look, the one Prius that. Uh, as cool as uh, Brett from Street Fight. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> he's, got this, he's got it painted up real nice. Yeah, maybe I'll have to find an airbrush uh, artist to put a wizard and a dragon on my <laughs> car, <laughs> or whatever he has. But uh, the other thing, so I I pulled my um, snow tires out of storage and put them on the Sabaru the other day, and. Um, I was thinking, do I need to get new snow tires? And I looked at the date code. And if I'm reading it correctly, if I'm looking at the right part of the tire, they were built or they were manufactured in 2009. So I think that means they're a little bit past their prime. And I need to get new tires on that. Probably. But uh, next question, do they have tread? They have tread. It's starting to dry rot a little bit, though. Uh, Don't worry about it. Yeah. (laughs) Don't worry about it. Just, Just fucking send it. It's got all-wheel um, drive. You'll be fine. Sure. I mean, until I have a blowout on the highway or something. Well, you know, that's true. <laughs> um, and then also, I think, you know, last winter, uh, I mentioned that I had a, a, a leak on one of my tires on the, on you know, the regular 
uh, summer tires and I had like plugged it or whatever. Well, that started leaking again uh, on Mm. that same tire. So I think those tires are toast also. And then the tires on my needing needing two (laughs) sets at once. Oh, well, I might need I might need three because the ones on my MR2 were a little bit worn down. So I oh, might be no. buying twelve tires. Uh, oh no! Jesus! It might be. It might be time to you know declare bankruptcy. Man. <laughs> like there's, there's got to be a lawyer you can contact. That's well. I mean, I I've got some money saved up. I can dip into that. Like I was thinking of you know spending on a, a Chevy Volt, but I might <laughs> spend that on tires and stuff. Instead. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was thinking about buying a more practical car, but you know what? All my shit boxes need tires, so I guess not. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not going to be exactly the same uh, price equivalent, but uh, you'll, you'll I, have I am some money left over, right? Yeah, like, yeah, I'll, I'll 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 be able to like you know do some some maintenance on both cars and put gas. Yeah, in you, and yeah, stuff. you can get that's a mod oil change. Yeah, that's mod money right there. Yeah, I like I was talking with Zach earlier. I think I was thinking of doing some mods on my my Sabaru and you know upping the power a little bit. And Beautiful. There maybe put go. coilovers on the MR2. I don't know. We'll see. I support it. Yeah. So it's all in it's all in the planning stages. I haven't actually done anything other than swap the the wheels and tires for the the snow tires. Um. Yeah. But um, I guess, uh, Connor, it's your turn. What have you been up to? Not terribly too much. I did go last weekend. I did finally make it out to a drift event, which was fun. It was rainy and cold and everything. Um, But I went out and I did a lot better than I was expecting to. um, Because the first event I went to earlier in the season and I was not doing good. (laughs) This last time I went out and I actually... I had mostly good runs and a few spins, but um, really overall, not too bad. It sucks when it's like a little bit wet, though, because you have to go really, really gently. um, So it's a little less fun, but I'm getting back in the groove a little bit. So that was cool. Uh, It's also nice that it like basically you can drift all day and not use any of your tire. So that's also cool. Now, I went out to this event, and it was like a Friday evening event, so it's sort of a, you know, go after work kind of deal, so it's like dark when I get there, and, you know, I get teched in and all that. It's raining, which kind of sucked, um, but then I already had my rear wheels changed. I did that like a day or two before. Oh, no, I, I, I left work a little bit early because I had worked. I would work some overtime or whatever, so I I was able to leave a little early, um, and I changed the tires at home. But then when I got there, I had to put the wheel spacers onto the front wheels because I can't drive like that normally because if I hit a bump, they hit the fenders, and it makes makes my my heart skip a beat. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It sounds bad. I don't like it, so um, I try not to drive like that. But on the track, it's fine because, well... It's fine if it's wet because there's not really too much G-force. I don't know if it was dry. It might be a little bit different, but I did the whole event and I didn't hear any scraping or anything. So that was pretty cool. So that was a thing. Although, it's, of course, as soon as I got to the track, my I have a, a small like floor jack um, and uh, it's I've used it a few times, but it shit out on me <laughs> as soon as oh. I went to use it. 
I don't know. It just wasn't lifting the car. I, I'm sure there's like maybe I just have to add fluid or something to it. But uh, it's was it the Harbor Freight one? No. Th- well, it's pretty close. It was one of those Husky ones. I got it from uh, Home Depot for. Yeah. I don't know. Well, however much. But. Yeah, you know, it was still um, really cost me some time there. So I was a little unhappy about that. But, you know, we'll see. Maybe I can get it working again. Who knows? Um, so I had to bust out my old scissor jack and a screwdriver. <laughs> which is how i've done drift events for years so like i'm used to it and whatever it was fine uh the wheel spacers worked out real well i did almost have like trouble getting them off because i learned the hard way there's a reason you're supposed to get impact rated sockets and shit (laughs) okay i've been a cheap ass and i've been like ah you know i have a weak impact like it's an electric impact it's nothing. It's not like a full on impact. You know what I mean? Like it can't yeah. even break my lug nuts off. Really, I, I use a breaker bar to get them all pretty close. And then I use the uh, impact to get, get them the rest of the way, um, which is really nice. It works out pretty well for drift events. It's a lot faster than using like the old fucking four way that I, that I was using for years. <laughs> but for the wheel spacers, like you kind of have to do that with an impact unless you want to like bust out a couple pry bars and like get it just right and i don't want to fuck with that so i just do it with the however tight the uh, impact will go that's how tight they're gonna be and that's tight enough but uh i i did have a problem getting them off like i put them on with the um impact and then it was the end of the night and i was trying to take them off and there was a couple nuts that got stuck like real stuck and i was like mm, this is not good um, and the problem was I was using an extension, which was also a mistake, but like the impact doesn't fit super well in between the studs. So, you know what I mean? So like I couldn't get quite all the way down on it. So I was like, oh, I'll just use an extension. No problem. Well, the extension was like getting was twisting inside the socket a little bit and like just I'm losing all that torque in there. So finally, I was like, all right, fuck it. Let's do it without the extension. It worked fine. I did get them off. But I was looking at my stuff and I was like, all right, I should get the impact rated extensions and sockets because there's a reason you're supposed to use it. And I knew I was going to find out eventually. So, <laughs> so I did find out I should get some impact stuff. It's just it's really expensive and I didn't want to do that. So that's a, a, a purchase coming up very, very soon. Oh, and then the other thing, uh, my coilover on the passenger side after soaking in a bunch of PB blast is still really fucking stuck. So I think I'm just going to leave it at the height it's at now. And I think next spring I'm going to have to just like get some new coilovers because that thing is fucking stuck. I could take it out and I've seen people do things like they soak. They like literally put it in a fucking bucket of various liquids but i i kind of just don't want to fuck with that because like then i can't drive the car for a few days and i don't want to fucking i don't want to fucking deal with it i need new coils anyway i'm not happy with the ones i have so new coilovers in the spring uh assuming i have some money which you know who knows um and then i did well, if you're get... gonna get new ones i mean you might as well at that point like break out the hammer and cold chisel and just wail on that thing to see what happens, right? Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, sure. Like, here's the thing. Like, if I can... Once I take them off, like, I'm just, like, not happy with them in general. They have not been 
their BC coilovers and BC basically had really good marketing for a few years there. And I got sucked in with that and it's kind of like, they're not that good. <laughs> so yeah, I, th- I, I want to change to something new that mine are just like, they're so, I have to keep them the ma- the damping max the fuck out because otherwise they bottom out and I'm not even that low. So it's like, I mean, I'm pretty low, but not that low. So they're just a pain in the ass to deal with. They don't perform quite well. So I think I'm going to switch to something else. But if I can like actually loosen them up and make them work, yeah, I'll sell these fucking BCs for, I don't know, some amount of money. Give somebody a cheap starter set, whatever. So yeah, I'll, I'll fuck with them then. But till then, I got, uh, I got more money to spend, of course. And then... Uh, I did buy from the specialty junkyard. I got some headlight ballasts. They were like 25 bucks they were selling them for. And brand new from AutoZone, uh, they're like $272. Fuck. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I was like, no, I'll I'll go. I'll go with the junkyard again. The last time I got them from the junkyard, they were $45 each. This time they were 25 and I was like, give me two, please. <laughs> now, I wonder if you can just like get an Ultima part that'll work or something, no, you know? I mean, it may be, but um, even then, I'm sure through the parts store, it's going to be too much. So I was like, fuck it. No, they got it. 25 bucks. I will. I'll replace them over and over again for that money. So <laughs> so that and then I tried to buy uh fender liners from them because mine are fucking torn up and that's part of the reason my headlight went out i think um is because like water splashes up in there and it's no good so they didn't have any of those and i pretty much forgot about it until we basically right before we started recording and i looked it up so as soon as i shut up for a bit i'm going to try and uh, order some that uh brand new ones which are way cheaper than i thought they were going to be so um yeah but i haven't been doing a ton it's just I went drifting and my car is a piece of shit and I need to do a bunch of other stuff to it, but it mostly works. Oh, and it's going to the shop this week to get some troubleshooting done. So maybe I'll figure out what the issue is. Probably not, but maybe. So, yeah. yeah. Sorry that that was long, but it was a lot. That was a long time to say I didn't do that much. <laughs> <laughs> no, you take about as much time as I did, and I did, yeah. did even less. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, uh, move. You know, moving on. Hopefully, I'll have more news next time. I also, well, for what it's worth, I left my um, my rear wheels are still the drift tires that I've just like left on the car, on the off chance that I get a, an opportunity in the next you know few weeks to uh, hit the track again. So, there may be more in the future. Nice, cool. That's yeah. Good Ooh, yeah. Uh, I think I've done even less since we last <laughs> talked. Because uh, pretty sure I told you guys I sold the Lexus last time we talked, mm-hmm. and that's like the last thing I did. Oh wait, no, no. I that's a lie. I completely forgot. I put <laughs> a door and a fender on my Ranger. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So it's not rolling around with a duct tape closed, smashed in door. And no fender. Now it's just like a slightly banged up fender. Uh, that's actually the same color. I did find one that was the hey, same nice. color. But yeah, it, the one minor issue that I have is that it was off a different trim level. 
So I have the XLT and it was off just like the whatever. I don't know. Not XLT one. So the pinstriping. I was just about to ask, is the pinstriping off? There. It's off. <laughs> yes. It's like, I didn't think it would annoy me, but it's kind of fucking annoying me. <laughs> oh, yeah, of course it is. <laughs> I'm like, oh, God damn it. It's just, <laughs> it annoys me way more than the fact that I had to beat both the door and the fender with a hammer for like several hours to get them to clear so that they didn't hit each other because <laughs> they're hit in the exact same spot that my really bad door and fender were hit, but it's just slightly less bad. <laughs> that I don't really care about, but that goddamn pinstripe, it just gets on my fucking nerves. Oh, that's, so, that's really funny. Yeah, I pull. I ended up pulling everything out of my original door that i needed other than it has glass that's got like really dark tint on it and the one i have on there has zero tint so it looks a little weird all of the windows on the truck being like almost blacked out and then that one's completely clear (laughs) (laughs) but uh yeah i don't think i'm gonna pull the glass and swap that i don't think that's worth it um or even i feel like that would bother me a lot more than the pinstripe (laughs) that that kind of shit I'm telling you, there's a massive dent in the door and the fender, and I don't fucking care. It's the goddamn fence stripe. I got weird priorities here, man. <laughs> like, I, I don't know. I considered, like, taking it to a tent shop and just having it match that window or, like, swapping the glass over. I don't know. I don't think I really care that much about it. But I am still seriously considering sanding off the pinstriping on the entire truck and respraying it so that it's, like not wrong you know what i know what you probably don't even i think to remove pinstriping like you can i think there's something you can soak it with like goo gone or something and just like pretty much like scrape it off without damaging the paint i'm pretty sure really you shouldn't have to respray anything i mean the clear coat is like almost completely gone on the entire truck and most (laughs) of the hood is bare metal but I'll try. I'll try. It's bare metal. Like, yeah. Like it's okay. just peeled up so bad that. Oh, it's okay. like, you got to respray know. shit anyway. Yeah. You got to respray shit anyway. Though. I mean, do I got to? Do I got to, though? Like, <laughs> is it a need or is it a want? Because at this point, I'm like, eh, fuck it. It's fine. It's been OK. Eh, but if you run true. your hand along the the hood, you'll you'll have a handful of red paint flakes. God, <laughs> but I mean, I really don't think that's that big of an issue. That's pretty. Yeah, low the problem on my is list. like, but the problem is, and and I noticed this. Like, you're like, oh, I don't care. I'm 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 not gonna have this car that long. And then it's like, twelve years later, and the car's just gotten worse and worse. And you're like, I didn't think I was gonna have the car this long, but you know, I just didn't. I just never changed it. You know, I. So I'm wondering if that's gonna come back to haunt you. I am getting rid of this truck in the next 12 weeks fuck 12 <laughs> years like there's no way i keeping it for that long well okay that i was exaggerating but it could be three <laughs> or four years and rust oh, can god. fuck you in that time oh god it better not it you know yeah you be. keep thinking like oh i'm not gonna have it that long but it's like you think the do you really think your circumstances are gonna look so nice that you're gonna get a different car in that time i don't know i i like to just... hope too but <laughs> I might be delusional, but I keep telling myself that. And I also have three other cars right now. So it's not like I really need to hang on to this piece of shit. Okay, well, this one runs, though. That's a pretty big difference. It does, but it still has 
a pretty big issue where like when the transmission gets really hot, it'll start to slip. And yeah, that's, that needs to be addressed. And if I can get that figured out, I I'm getting rid of it at that point. Cause I would just, I don't really drive it at this point because of that issue. And I don't want to cause more damage to a transmission yeah. that's been rebuilt twice and cost yeah, me a lot of money. Blame you. What the fuck? How could it still be having issues? I honestly, I think it's because I was an idiot and I wasn't paying attention and I put a high stall torque converter in there instead of like the lower stall. And it just, it has to run up really high rev before it'll shift. And it just does not like that at all. And it tends to start to slip the bands once it gets hot. So yeah, I'm going to take it to a transmission shop with it all together still and see if they can like, do some troubleshooting, some diagnosis for me, and just tell me if I can get away with just dropping a low stall torque converter in there. And then whenever I have a little bit of time, ha ha ha, I will <laughs> <laughs> I'll pull it all apart and and drop the low stall torque converter in there and then sell it with a clean conscience. Because right now, like I could take it, like I could have someone take it on a test drive and they would never know. You know what I mean? Like you, you would never experience the problem. You yeah. would never show any signs of like hard shifting or anything. It would just be like, oh, it has a high stock torque converter. That's why it's not going to shift until it's over 3000 RPM. So, you know, just pedal it a little bit and it'll shift. No big deal. Right. And, and I could sell it like that, but honestly, I don't even believe in karma, but I don't want that bad car karma coming back to me. So I'm going to try to not do that. You know? Yeah, no, that's fair. But yeah, that's uh, that's the latest update on that. I also pulled like three OEM speakers from the junkyard when I was there getting that door and fender. So I went ahead and put those in because it had some janky aftermarket shit that was like half screwed in to all the, you know, speaker locations. I always thought that like even like the jankiest, shittiest quality aftermarket speaker was probably better than like the oem ones but maybe i'm wrong i don't know uh it you might have a lower bar for jankiest than <laughs> than you think can exist because i literally the door the driver's side door speaker had one screw holding it in it was the wrong size for the opening so the three other screws did not match up to the holes and it was oh. i mean I mean, so that's not. I the, would say it's an so AutoZone special. Speaker. You're you're but, shitting on the speaker, but it's not the speaker that's the issue. It's that like <laughs> it was the wrong speaker for the car. That's part of the issue, but I would say an, calling it an AutoZone special is giving it too much credit. I don't know who made this thing, but it feels like <laughs> a piece of actual like actual garbage. Okay, <laughs> it's it's so bad. So yeah, three OEM speakers in there, and that thing sounds fucking phenomenal comparatively sweet so yeah i did a little bit of quality of life shit like that fixed up the lock the lock was just kind of working funky before so i pulled it apart when obviously i had to swap it to the new door and i just cleaned it up a little and got it running smoother new speakers new door and fender yeah once i get that transmission issue worked out hopefully it's nothing too crazy. If it's if they're like, dude, you need a new transmission or you need it to be rebuilt or whatever, 
I'm going to drop a junkyard transmission in it. There's no way I'm rebuilding that same one a third yeah, no. time. It's the thing's cursed or it was fucked from the get go <laughs> and it'll never be okay. I don't know what's going on with it, but nah, it, it had its chance. It's going in the garbage. Or is it, are you going to like anonymously drop it off back at that shop that fucked you? <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, legally, absolutely not. I would never do such a thing. Uh, yeah. Okay. I was just ironically and sarcastically. Oh, I'm a fucking. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you could always um. In as Minecraft. long as the truck is working, Minecraft, yes. you could put the trans on a dolly in the back of the truck and then like mm-hmm. roll up there with, uh, you know, whatever you got to do to rig up the door. But then if you. I was thinking go park across the street, uh, you know, f- facing away from. Their oh, shop, yeah. And then and then. Fly- Yep. With the trans. Yeah, that's much better. Yep. And just. That's a good. I mean, that truck does have a limited slip rear diff, so I could probably do a pretty sweet skid in it. I just, uh, I think it couldn't handle it. (laughs) Honestly, (laughs) (laughs) I could do one really sweet skid in it. And then after that, it would not move anymore. And that would be really embarrassing (laughs) if I. And then stalled in the parking lot and couldn't drive away. <laughs> I feel like that would not look great. Uh, yeah. So yeah. you're saying there's a reason why people aren't uh, competitively drifting Ford Rangers. I mean, yeah, that that's probably one of the reasons out of many. <laughs> I would not recommend it. No. But yeah, hopefully if I get that one sold and then... Maybe at some point I'll get back to looking at that Audi and and get that fixed. I, I Yeah, I'd like to hear more about that Audi at some point. So, like, I'd like for you to be able to work on that. I would like to work on it, but every time I do, I just get so frustrated. It's oh, getting yeah. one bolt out right now has literally been the job for the last, like, I don't know, six months. One bolt. Well, let me know if you want me to come over and give you moral support. Or at least, like, drink beer and watch you while you struggle. <laughs> I mean, I, I would always appreciate that. That's that's fun. <laughs> All right. Just someone, you know, just some camaraderie. Someone to yell to instead of screaming at the sky. Yeah. that That's always helpful. So, yeah, I'll let you know next time I get in there. But, yeah, no, if I if I can get those both those vehicles sold, I am still seriously considering getting a Maverick. Like... I know I've talked about it a lot, yep. but I just found out that um, they they have, you know, the hybrid one, which gets like 40 miles to the gallon. Uh, the non-hybrid one has a two liter EcoBoost, and that thing averages like 35 miles to the gallon. And you can get it with all wheel drive. And that one's only like 25 grand. So, you know, you're already going to pay 20 for the hybrid. What's another five grand? You get all wheel drive. And the same motor that's in the Ford Focus ST, so you know there's aftermarket parts for it. Oh, that's fucking. <laughs> oh, that is quite a thought there. That's yeah, dangerous thinking. I know. I'm like, 
sort of hypothetically considering getting rid of my Subi to get one of these. Because four-cylinder, turbocharged, all-wheel drive, has aftermarket support. I mean, shit, man. It's a WRX with a bed. Yeah, but it's an automatic. It is. It is an automatic. That's like the biggest drawback. But it's an eight-speed automatic, so that's at least interesting, I guess. Unique in in some way. It's kind of nifty. I think a lot of cars now have eight-speeds. Do they? Yeah, I wonder. It would probably be a huge pain in the ass, but in, in theory, maybe you could swap in the transmission from uh, Focus uh, RS. Probably that be would really be cool. expensive. Yeah, I think the Focus RS has a different motor. Yeah. I think the ST has the 2 liter, but I don't know. Yeah, I, I think the RS the... is a little bit different. But the RS, um, they, I think they discontinued partially because their transmissions were like glass and they had to like <laughs> replace oh, every seriously? one of them or something. Okay, yeah, they were... Yeah. They were, they were, uh, it was kind of a lemon car, unfortunately. Very yeah, cool sucks. when it worked, but uh, yeah, kind of a lemon car. All right. Well, then you could swap in the transmission from a Mazda Speed 6. Oh, yeah, because Mazda and Ford use that same motor, right? It's it's all the same. I mean, it's, it's you know, diverged for the past, like, 10 years or so. So I don't know, like, how much interchanges, but... In theory, it's maybe possible. That would be cool. Yeah. That would be cool to, to manual swap it. But that's still the very much a hypothetical. I think it would be neat, though, to have like a, you know, just put like an intake and a downpipe on a Ford Maverick and make like <laughs> boost noises <laughs> in my little pickup truck. <laughs> like... He's got the tuner cars like that. Doesn't that's my pickup truck. <laughs> oh, you could put a stack in the bed with a with a little flapper, like a tractor flapper. Thing. Yeah, <laughs> that would be cool. Dual stacks, and one of them is uh, the external wastegate. Yeah, dump pipe. <laughs> now that's that's a thought. Yeah, I like it. I like it. They also, um, I've looked at flat out suspension before for my Subaru. But they have a, a kit for the Maverick as well, which they're like um like a long travel coilover manufacturer. Nice, nice. Yeah, they do yeah. Like I've ra- heard like of flat out suspension. I, th- I I think I've heard good things about them. Yeah, they're they're good shit. I mean, it's like eighteen hundred bucks for their entry level like off road style long travel, which gives you like two inches of lift and two inches more of travel as well. I think. Which is like, I mean, that's not bad considering most like mid higher end coilovers for most cars are in that range, fifteen hundred to two grand. Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah. So I think that would be even cooler. Get a little lift on it and then have a little turbo off road. Hell yeah, that'd be fucking sweet. Yeah, very cool in theory, but we'll see if it happens. I don't know. I like I said, I have to get rid of the Ranger and probably the Audi at least. And probably the Subaru, honestly. If I'm being realistic, I think I'd probably have to get rid of all three to afford it. If yeah, you're we'll cash, see. maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't really want another car payment, though. <laughs> By the way, I did look it up. Um, you can get coilovers for a uh, Chevy Volt. 
but should I, you? Yeah. <laughs> I think it's the same platform as a as a Chevy Cruze, same basic chassis. So like whatever will fit that, you know, sway bars, coilovers, whatever. Don't. Do I that, mean, Ryan. I'm not don't encouraging you. I'm not encouraging you to get a Volt. Like, don't get a Volt. <laughs> but if you get a Volt, you might as well fucking slam it. Right. Like, at that no, point, see that I'm I'm the opposite. <laughs> if you get a Volt, then that is your practical vehicle, and you don't slam it. You don't put sway bars in it. You get a fucking something on the side, a Miata or something else. Don't don't fucking mod the Volt. <laughs> it mod will always be a car. disappointment. Don't do it. Mod every <laughs> car you own. Never leave one single car unmodified. <laughs> well, yeah, but that means. But see, the thing about that is, you buy cars that should be modified, not Chevy Volts, not that car. <laughs> I mean, I'm seriously considering buying a Ford Maverick right now and modifying That's, um, it. <laughs> I would mod that. That's different than a, than a four door sedan that is that has like zero cool points. Like a Subaru's got a four door, but it's got a lot of cool points. The Volt does not have that. And what's the best way to give it a couple cool points? Oh my god! No. All right, <laughs> slam it to the with. ground, put some wheels on it, get that underglow. Maybe hell yeah! Look, underglow is cool in all cases. I will, I will stand by that. Good thing Brandon's not. I, I would like. Ball. Oh my god, he'd be having a an aneurysm. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to object to underglow always being cool. I saw a vehicle that probably had. I'm gonna guess in the realm of fifty thousand dollars worth of aftermarket parts on it. All of them white themed. Uh, let's wow. see how long you guys, how, how much description I need before you guess what kind of car this is. You have any guesses right off the, the bat? Okay. I have, I'm wondering, I don't know where it was, but is it, is it a blue civic with like spinning doors? No. Do you this know which in, one I'm talking about? Yes, I okay. do. Not that one. This is in real life. Like last month. Okay. okay. Probably gonna 50 say... grand. Okay, what do you got? Uh, just a wild ass guess. I'm gonna say a Dodge Magnum. No. Oof. <laughs> Oof, no. But I can I can see it. I can definitely <laughs> see it. Uh is it maybe uh, like an escalade or something? No. I was closer. thinking maybe that SUV route could could account for that high price tag on the lights. Uh that's closer. It, okay. it was it was an SUV. Is very lifted. It okay, was, keep describing it. It had those, uh, you know, deep dish wheels. Oh yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Oh yeah. Very sure. little tread. Um, I'm trying to think of things that won't give it away. It's it was all white. All of the aftermarket stuff was white. Um, steel bumpers. Was it? Was it like a Tahoe? No. Not quite. Hmm. Think more annoying. More annoying than a Tahoe. Hmm. And it's an SUV. Hmm. What would make it annoying though? What? Okay. Has, what year is it? G- give me uh, like. Is it like brand new? Is this like close an to car? it? Close to it. Five years max. Okay. Is okay. Is it a Jeep? Uh. Trailhawk or Trackhawk or whatever the fuck. They're like 400 horsepower ass so SUV. Close. So close. Is it a Wrangler? Yep. 
Oh, four door Wrangler (laughs) with underglow and probably six to eight inches of lift, which means that in my lowered Subaru, the underglow was at my fucking eye level. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, I'm going to run you off the road, you fucking asshole. Oh, man. There's so many times that I'll be driving in my MR2 and a lifted pickup with like LED headlights is right in my eyes, you know? Oh, yeah. I mean, they had bright white LED headlights, which were behind me, so I got over, and then they had bright white fucking underglow that was right next to me. I was like, God damn it, I can't win. Look, uh, that's a new trend I've seen on a lot of, like, lifted pickups and shit is, like, they'll, like, have, like, underglow, and they'll put in the wheel wells and stuff. And you know what? Underglow is for lowered cars only. That's, it's, like, it's not cool if I can, like, bend down and, like, see the shit. Like, it's supposed to be hidden. That's why they put it on really low cars because it's like, what are you going to, you can't even stick your head under there. So it looks cool. When you lift it up, it's like, I can see it's a cheapo LED strip. It's not cool anymore. It yeah. loses the magic. Yeah. Yeah. If you can see how the trick is done, then yeah, it's, it's not, not magic cool. anymore. Yeah. Underglow is supposed to be close to the ground, not, that's like uh, a college student hanging the fucking LED strips on their ceiling. And you're like, <laughs> that's not decoration, man. That's come on. Do better. That's fucking corny. Yeah. Have you have you seen the SUVs where they put the LEDs in the wheel wells? I mean, that's exactly Just what I'm talking about. Wheels? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. I thought you meant like under the body, like under the frame. I mean, they do that too. But like, okay. yeah, they definitely put it in the wheel wells. I'm just like, nope, not cool. Definitely not cool. Yeah. yeah. Look at my like, twin I feel like there tube could be... external reservoir shock absorbers that I have under here that have literally never seen anything but pavement. Yeah, I feel like there's I feel like there's got to be a way that it could be done tastefully. I just feel like I haven't seen it yet. And it like I feel like I you can't be on a crazy is. lift. If you lift the car too much, it's like you're lighting up nothing. Like I, I don't know. I feel yeah. like there's a good there's a way you could do it right, but I have I have yet to see it. And it's just not my style, so I'm probably gonna be harsh on it no matter what. Yeah, I think at a certain point it's just a light, you know? Yeah. Like underglow is cool because it's almost like an ambiance. It's like the car's yes. emitting a glow. Like yes. it's like glowing. But if you can see the light bulb, it's just you're just looking at a light bulb. Yeah, one hundred percent. And I feel like with underglow, you're 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 fucking lighting up the pavement, not look it inside the fucking wheel well of my car. Exactly. Very different. Yeah, underglow should be on the street. But anyway, uh, enough of that uh, tangent. Probably time to talk about how fucking awful, dangerous cars were back in the, uh, you know, '60s and '50s, and how they're it's all because of capitalism. Um. Real quick, before we do that, I I thought of something else that broke on my MR2 um, <laughs> that I forgot about. You know how I was talking about how I, you know, I think I, I said this, that the stereo is really bad and the speakers are all crackly, but I didn't want to, like, pull out the dash to get at them. Well, I might have to pull out the dash because on my car, the little, the, the little switch that goes from, like, recirculate to... Um, uh, you know, open air on the HVAC system. It's a lever with like a cable that opens a door on the firewall. Yeah. Nice. And um, it had been binding up for a while. And then that cable just snapped the other day. 
Hmm. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, that little lever is just moving back and forth with no change. And I think it's stuck open, which is OK. But unless I have to, like, drive past the Purina factory on I-70. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I'll have to fix that eventually someday. But but yeah, let's uh, let's take a quick break here and uh, and then talk about some unsafe at any speed type stuff. All right, uh, we're back and I just have a couple quick plugs before we get into the main content. You know, we haven't said this in a while, but if you have something to tell us if you have a cool project car, if you have a question, uh, if you need some car advice, and uh, if you want us to read something on the air, uh, just let us know. Send us an email, comment on social media, and uh, just say explicitly, I want you to read this on the air, and we will. We might. We I, might. I don't know if yeah. We, we might. We'll think about it. All right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, for, thanks for that caveat. <laughs> you can't just go putting anything on there, you know. Yeah. We have yeah. limits. <laughs> but yeah. All right. So back to Ralph Nader. Um, we're going through chapters seven and eight today. Um, and then I, I also wanted to talk a little bit on the forward to the 1972 version, just because that's what I got from the library. It has a little bit of, you know, uh, more explanation uh, on some things that happened since 1965 first edition. But uh, but first, we'll start off with Chapter 7, the Traffic Safety Establishment. And this is a lot of this chapter is basically Ralph Nader talking about all the different sort of safety foundations and establishments that were mostly like trade groups, um, you know, established by the auto industry and um, didn't do a whole lot to actually, you know, keep people safe. Uh, It was more of a, you know, look, we're doing something to help you consumers. Uh, And there was also a a few like sort of government agencies that sort of came out of the the movement towards safety that, uh, that Ralph Nader was a part of that were kind of also just rubber stamps for the auto industry to do whatever they wanted. So, and there's also just a few more tidbits about how dangerous cars were back in the day. And one of those is, um, so I guess in the early sixties, the design of parking brakes was such that you would have to hold onto the, you know, the regular foot brake with your foot while you engage the parking brake or else it wouldn't fully engage. If you did this, if you didn't fully engage it, it was enough to keep the car from rolling forward, but it was not enough to keep it from rolling backwards. Oh no. <laughs> so <laughs> this is from a ni- uh, March, 1963 bulletin from the association of uh, casualty and surety companies. So it was insurance companies. Uh, I think that's how you pronounce that uh, casualty and surety anyways. So they, they put out this bulletin warning of this hazard and their recommendation was just to educate drivers that you need to keep your foot on the 
foot brake while you do this, not to the car makers to design a better system. Yeah, they said no problem can occur if a driver trains himself to do this. It's like, okay, yeah, sure. Let's see. So starting in 1952 and all the way up to 1961, uh, some people at Liberty Mutual started designing a some improvements to, to make to cars to make them more safe. And uh, this was uh, headed up by an engineer named Frank Crandell. And he designed a, a lot of these different features, so-called capsule seats, which, um, uh, yeah, the, des- uh, the features included specially designed capsule seats designed to stay moored on impact and protect the passenger from rear end and side collisions. So seats that don't detach from their mounts and fly around. I mean, that's a pretty big innovation, right? I, that was not the standard previous to this. <laughs> no. that, that was something that had to be adjusted for. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No. yeah. Makes perfect sense. He also designed a, a safer steering assembly that wouldn't, you know, impale the driver or smash them in the face. It says improved maneuverability. I'm not sure what that means. Uh, just, you know, better handling, I guess. Greater visibility, fail safe brakes. And I believe that means dual circuit brakes so that you have, yeah. you know, um, separate systems for the, the front and the back, usually. Automatic fire control system. So I'm not sure exactly what that means, like a like a fire extinguisher that would go off automatically to uh, put out any fires. Yeah, um, I wonder because uh, I don't think we have that shit today. Yeah, no, that, that's a really good point. That'd be nice. Why? Why do we not have that? That seems like a <laughs> no brainer, right? Like I never really put two and two together right now. But yeah, tons of race cars have that. It's not like it hampers the effectiveness of any other state like you know like a roll cage you can't really put a roll cage in a normal car if you don't run like a helmet or whatever and yeah. most normal cars have a good enough unibody that they're pretty much more or less okay in a rollover but uh you know a fire extinguisher isn't gonna get in the way what the fuck man why don't we have this shit in every single car this makes yeah, no dude, sense honestly look you could to just explain how easy it is to mount a fire extinguisher in a regular everyday car. I have one in mind because I need it for the track mm-hmm. and it's right under the passenger seat, but like, like right in front of it and the bracket hooks right to the, to the bolts of the passenger seat. And it's like right in front where people don't put their feet. You know what I mean? Yeah. Could be put oh, yeah. in every single car very easy. And if that was just like the norm, that would be cool. I mean, every, everyone I mean, would have it and, I think you're aiming a little low. Uh, Like, I have one of those in my car as well. But honestly, like, fucking route the shit in so that if it, you know, if it gets in a crash and I get knocked out, it just turns on. So I don't unconsciously burn alive. Exactly, yeah. Just like an airbag. It should just spray shit out of fire. It's not that much weight, I don't think. It's not that much more if you plan ahead for it and put it in as it's being manufactured. Like, I wonder 
if they just did their little calculations and they were like, oh, only like 111 people die per year by being burned alive in their car. So that's not really worth it. We're not going to do 100% this. That's 100% what it is. That's, <laughs> yeah. They yeah. did that. <laughs> I, I don't know why I said that like it was a question. Of course, that's what it was. Like, yeah. Fucking. I, I mean, you're right, though. Uh, just an actual fire extinguisher mounted under the front passenger seat would be basically free when you consider the price of a new vehicle and would yeah. give people an option at least to put out fires. And and I mean, and if everyone had and, it, if a car yeah. wrecked, someone that was nearby could pull exactly. their fire extinguisher out <laughs> and fucking put the fire out in that car. Jesus Christ. Yeah, they need to be standard. That's absurd that they're not. I can't believe I never even thought of that before. And you should really have one of these if you have a car that's prone to catching on fire, like maybe a Tesla or an air-cooled Volkswagen or a Pontiac Fiero. Uh, let's let's I mean, be look, clear here. If you have a Tesla and that thing catches on fire, a fire extinguisher ain't doing shit for you. Yeah, yeah you almost <laughs> they want to take burn like a little faster. thirty to fifty thousand gallons of water to put those out. <laughs> You're fucked. Just run. Like, well, if you can get the door the open, doors might lock you inside. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. So this guy also had plans for like a rollover bar. See for windshields, which it doesn't really go into detail on that, and a smooth hood to reduce the severity of pedestrian injury, which I think was not a standard feature until like 2010, 2005, somewhere around there, when like passenger cars had to explicitly, you know, deal with pedestrian impacts. Hmm. Yeah, some of those, uh, some of those cars from way back uh, look again dangerous. Yeah, yeah. A second gen Camaro comes to mind. That thing looks like it wants to <laughs> yeah. kill a pedestrian. Yeah. Um. You know, he shopped this around to different car companies, insurance companies, and state regulators, and pretty much none of them were interested. Um, the closest he got was what we talked about in last episode: um, the 1963 Ford Mustang concept had a lot of these same features that that they incorporated from his plans. Uh, but then those never made their way into the production version of the car. Let's see. Uh, the, the insurance company said, or no, Ralph Nader says the, the profits of the casualty industries, the uh, insurance industry now come more from investment income than from earned premiums. So basically even in the sixties, insurance companies were, financialized to the point where they were making most of their profit from investing those premiums than they were from getting the premiums themselves. Nice. I didn't know that. Interesting. (laughs) So everything, everything old is new or whatever. It's nothing really changes in that. Like (laughs) financial industry is just going to keep on trying to, to suck profit out of everything. So, in 1962, the Massachusetts AAA, uh, led by Robert Kretschmar and Richard Hoover, introduced a state bill that would establish a code of minimum safety standards for cars. In 1963, shortly before the hearing on the bill, a special trip to Detroit for the committee was arranged with all expenses paid. The bill has never gotten Uh-oh. out of committee. Oh, no. <laughs> so... Um, yeah, that, uh, they were, 
they were trying to basically start because like at this time, a lot of these regulations were just up to the state. There wasn't like federal administrations for like highway safety or anything like that. Um, they're just like, well, if we can do this in Massachusetts, maybe the other states will follow suit. It's kind of like how California has their own emissions laws, that kind of thing. So Ralph is uh, is putting on blast the National Safety Council. And this is an older institution that's existed since, I think, 1913, and it still exists today. And they oh, do... Doesn't? I figured it would have um, been replaced by the... Uh... National, oh god, what is it? Highway Traffic Safety Administration. They they mostly do like consumer safety stuff, like like I don't know, so you don't like slip and fall in your bathtub and stuff like that. Ah, but uh, at this point, um, he he said that the National Safety Council conducts no research, has not devised any accident prevention measures or determined any engineering requirements for safe design of automobiles and has avoided providing to the public any technical information or advice concerning the formulation of safety legislation, which concerns vehicle design, nor has it cooperated with any national state or local agencies. So he's, he's saying, you know, like you guys are all about consumer safety. Like, why aren't you looking at cars? Like, come on, it's in the name, you know, what's your deal? Yeah. Um, and like, I'm not entirely sure what their, where their funding comes from or when it, where it came from back then. But, you know, he, he, uh, goes into a little bit more detail on, on some of the other foundations. But, you know, he, he's just saying like, these people are not serving the public interest. They're, they're mostly trade groups posing as public safety, uh, foundations. He also is, uh, has, not very kind things to say about the president's committee on traffic safety, which he says was run by private interest groups with no supervision from the white house. So it was established by the president and given, you know, the, the, I don't know, um, stamp of approval by the president, but it didn't actually answer to the president or like, <laughs> um, you know, take any advice from the white house or anything. Nice. Uh, its mission is essentially to see that the federal government stays out of traffic safety and that the entrenched view of accidents and injuries being due to driver behavior is not disturbed. A status quo policy makes very good camouflage. Oh, and, um, you know, here's uh, the closest that Ralph Nader ever got to uh, police abolition basically saying that uh, cops don't keep us safe, actually. Um, so let me find that passage. I mean, that's a good take. <laughs> uh, enforcement is another time-tested preventative measure that has not been subjected to much scientific scrutiny. In an article by Dr. Michaels entitled The Effects of Enforcement on Traffic Behavior, which appeared in Public Roads, that's the name of a journal, in December 1960, the author examined data comparing highly patrolled roads in Wisconsin with comparable roads having fewer patrolmen. The yeah, author I, hold on. I can vouch for Wisconsin is still like that. Yeah. And Michigan still like that. Yeah. Very fucking patrolled. God damn it. And they love getting <laughs> Illinois drivers. They see that fucking plate a mile away and they're like, mm, they're sitting there waiting. They're like, I know this guy isn't going to show up to the court date. 
Oh yeah, they oh, they will fuck mm-hmm. you so bad. And those like Michigan cops, they hide behind the fucking like bridges and shit. Oh, they're motherfuckers. They really are. Mo- I mean, they're all bad, obviously. Yeah, I was gonna say they that's all forever. Over. That's the saying. But like, I know when I'm going to like Michigan or Wisconsin, I gotta be driving like a fucking grandma. Which I drive like a grandma more than you would think, but. <laughs> yeah it's is bad and so wisconsin heavily patrolled yeah and i i know i don't know if this is still the, the case but i know at least a few years ago it was in the news that um drivers from colorado leaving the state were getting pulled over uh you know because like nebraska cops are like y- y'all smuggling weed out of colorado yep which i'm sure people were doing but also it's like you know, come on, every single. <laughs> exactly. I'm pretty sure leaving a state is not probable cause. So. Exactly. Oh, yeah. 100, well, it's that. Uh, yeah. But we live in a police state. Yeah. No. Which no one understands is a police state. I just it. it's like they're like, oh, my God, did you hear what they do in, you know, this country or that country? And you're like, you realize you live in America, right? With the largest <laughs> oh, you... prison population in the world. Did you hear what they do here? Like, <laughs> it's like turn on the news one time, please. Yeah. Uh, yeah. When I think um, like a couple different states attorney generals uh, sued Colorado for legalizing weed because they're like, you're you're bringing crime into our peaceful states <laughs> where no one ever smokes weed. You know, what's a great solution to that. Make it not a crime. Congratulations. <laughs> you just eliminated crime. It would also like maybe, you know, ease up the uh, the housing market a little bit in Colorado if people wouldn't keep moving here for weed. Yeah, that'd be cool. That would be real nice. But anyway, so um, they compared roads that were heavy, heavily patrolled to roads that were less patrolled. Uh, the author concluded that different amounts of highway police patrol between the test roads and the non-test roads showed no reliable difference in the number of accidents on those roads. Huh? Yeah. Who'd have thought? Say. Interesting. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, all cops are bastards. Uh, abolish the police, I think, is, is my conclusion. I don't know uh, if Ralph Nader is going to say the same, but but we will here where we interpret the work of Ralph Nader. We will say that all cops are bastards and should be abolished. And so should prisons. Yes. Fuck all that shit. Oh, and um, I think I might've mentioned this on a previous episode, but it still kind of blows my mind. It's talking about how anti-lock brakes have been in, in use in aircraft since the 1930s. Um, Hmm. so like there was the, it it could have come in handy on, on cars, you know, to put those in, (laughs) but, uh, that took until, I don't know, the eighties, nineties for most cars. Yeah, it costs too much money. Costs, costs too much. (laughs) Lowered profits. Yeah. (laughs) And, um. Which I actually don't even understand how it did because again, you could just pass the cost on to the fucking consumer like you do everything else. I, I, I almost don't get like. And now we see like cars are, they've gotten more and more expensive, but forever, but like they could have just started that process sooner. Like there's always a demand for it and people will continue buying cars. And like, as long as 
it's a huge part of American culture. Like as long as the world is built around needing a car, you can charge whatever you want and we'll be taking out fucking mortgages on cars soon. Yeah. Like there's no reason that they couldn't have done any of these safety things. It literally comes down to like, in a way they think like, Oh, it costs too much. It would hurt our profits. But really it's like, no, it wouldn't. You literally just didn't care if people died because you could have made that profit. And in fact, a lot of these features are an opportunity for more profit because obviously they raise the cost of the car, which gives you more room to, you know, put profit on top of every little fucking feature like they do today. I mean, they could just be like, oh, well, you know, employees have to make more money and wages to pay for these expensive fucking cars. Like they could have started that process long ago and they just didn't give a shit. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, like with most car options, you know, it probably costs like $200 $200 to do interlock brakes and they can charge $2,000 for it. Exactly. As an option, it's like, you know? there's no reason they couldn't have done this. It, it's almost like just sheer laziness at that point. Yeah. I mean, even to this day, they like every new car almost still bills a, a reverse camera as a feature. Like they, they will literally advertise that, Oh, it's got a backup camera that's required. Yeah. It's like 2013. You have to do that. But they'll still be like, look, we've got reverse cameras and they're going to charge you for it. Like, I mean, maybe they won't charge you extra for it because they can't sell oh, you. No, I think they can charge it. you extra for it. Like they or like it's built into the cost of the car. Oh, yeah. So it's, it's, it's built more, into but... the cost, but it's still they can use it for marketing just as easily mm-hmm. as they could have done it then. Oh, brand new anti-lock braking systems, you know, they and then they could upcharge it if it wasn't, you know, regulated to be required so yeah, fucking they, goofy yeah it's they just, could use it for advertising they could charge more for it they just simply don't fucking care you know i know it's a tangent but like i feel like through this show and like really looking at how capitalism has functioned in so many ways i cannot i always come back to the realization that like capitalists aren't even good at capitalism like they are in some <laughs> ways but in so it's like but then they're like, you're, y'all are just leaving money on the table and getting people killed needlessly at the same yeah. time. Like you, you could stop death and make more money. And they're like, you know what? Not that. And it's not even like they were ignorant about it. They literally knew. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah. capitalism runs on a quarterly time scale. Like right. if yep. you sabotage your quarterly profits in order to make, you know, throw a number out there. I don't really fucking care. 10 times, 30 times more money in the long run. It, it doesn't matter. They're not going to yeah. do that. They will never, ever, ever tank one quarter's profits. That's just the it's way crazy. that it runs. It doesn't matter if it's not logical. Because obviously capitalism itself doesn't make any fucking sense. It's all you know, of, Yeah. All of capitalism is like that fucking meme of like the fucking painted over cockroach in an apartment. You know, it's, <laughs> yeah, just, yeah. it's just like, keep it running for this quarter. Just good enough. It, the whole time. system is just bubble gum and rubber bands. <laughs> just duct tape. It's like my shitty, this is my, my project cars. It's it every single is one. Zach's Ranger. <laughs> yeah. The pinstripes don't line up. One of the windows isn't tinted. <laughs> there's some sort of smell coming from it, you know, but it's, it's probably we- affecting your lungs, but Hey, it's the best we got. Yeah. It's the best system we got. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> yeah. And 
a, a couple more things about um, Antelope Breaks before we move on. Um, I don't know what Antelope Break technology was like in the 1930s or the 1960s. If I had to guess, I imagine it's probably something like the Antelope Breaks that were on my friend's old Chinese scooter, which I think was like some sort of like spring-loaded piston thing that would like, you know, sort of oscillate back and forth if they started to lock up. Yeah, I, was I don't know. Say, I'm like, I feel like it's probably a mechanical mechanism. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like modern interlock brakes are really good. And I think um, there's an engineering explained video about this. That's basically mm. saying you can't beat um, interlock brakes. Cause like, you know, before any uh, boomers or Brandon for that matter says like, hold on, uh, <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to take this position. I'll, I'll be Brandon right now. I'm, yeah. I'm on it. You're going to say, oh, you can just pump the brakes. It's fine. You know, <laughs> no, do, no. Do, so do threshold I cap- braking. I will yeah. caveat it with this. That's not great for the average driver. Most yeah. people should not like, I don't think every single person should be like, I'm able to do like motorsports level driving on. It's like, no, most people can't. So anti-lock brakes are good. I personally don't like them on my vehicle and it scares the shit out of me when it engages. And I took mine out when I put my hydraulic handbrake in the one that doesn't work and has never worked, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, which I'm, I'm hoping to fix maybe this winter. I'm going to try and get that done by a professional so that it does work. But um, yeah, I haven't had ABS in years now and I prefer it. I pump the brakes <laughs> and I brake real gently in the winter. Real, real soft. Yeah. I mean, that's the one. Uh, thing where anti-lock brakes is really going to save your asses in the winter when you're going from like dry pavement to ice to snow to wet or whatever you can't really learn to threshold break in all those scenarios and all those conditions as well as a computer can you know yeah yeah for for me my problem with anti-lock brakes and i think they could work better if they made them like more i don't know what the correct word is but more coarse like i because they work so fast that it's like the tire and i don't think the tire has enough time to gain traction again before it starts sliding it like the interval is too quick i think because it's like and that's i'm like the tire like the grip has not changed in the you know quarter of a second that you just didn't apply you know what i mean whereas like yeah. when you're pumping it it's it's in the you know a half a second to a second or something the tire actually has some time to regain the grip you know what i mean yeah um i get it like that doesn't work for everybody but i feel like anti-lock brakes should be a little bit more the interval on how how it engages should be longer but maybe i'm an, i mean i'm not an engineer so maybe they've tested that and they found that Theirs is the best, but every time I've been in a car that the anti-lock brakes were on, it felt real shitty. I was like, mm, it feels like it's not stopping it at all. So I don't know. That's my take. I'll yeah, take I a mean, brand in position. <laughs> I think there's definitely some scenarios where it's better to not have anti-lock brakes, but I think the modern systems are sort of overcoming those. Like one is if you're in like like powdery snow if you lock up the wheels, it can kind of make a, a mound of snow in front of your wheels that'll actually slow you down quicker. Hmm. Um, but I think in most scenarios, it's it's better to have anti-lock brakes. That's my understanding. 
Yeah, I mean, I certainly feel like it's better for the it's certainly better for the average driver. Like, no, no doubt about that. I'm not going to the vast majority. It is better for me. I don't like it. Yeah, I think it's icky to me. (laughs) I think I'm like, I'm kind of with you, Connor. Like, I, I feel like I can break better than anti-lock brakes most of the time. Having grown up in like a very snowy area, you know, I, I kind of yeah. learned how to do that threshold. That's what I'm saying. He's like, you get the feel for it, and you're like, uh, no, I've I've felt when the anti-lock brakes hit, and I'm like, yo, I thought that you were supposed to fucking stop the wheels from locking up, and it just like yeah. makes it lock up a hundred thousand times before I crash. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Instead of locking up once, I lock up a hundred times. Doesn't help me that much. On the other hand, though, I don't think I'm that much better at braking than the anti-lock braking system. Like, I think it's a very small margin, frankly. And also, I'm fucking lazy. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to <laughs> do it myself. Yeah. If I can, like, I can trust the system to be almost as good as I am on my best day. And I just don't want to deal with it. I think it's probably good enough. And I don't care enough to to try that hard all the time. I know I'm going to get caught slipping if I don't have it. And so I'd rather just, I, I'm like, hey, you got it, Antelac Breaks, right? Yeah, you got it. You got it. It's cool. It's cool. You do it. Not me. I'm not doing it. Fuck that. That's, that's too much work. Yeah. See, I, I've, I've done enough drifting in the snow to like with and without the Antelac Breaks. So uh, I, I did have a chance to get the hang of my car. But, you know, and uh, it took a while with the Antelac Breaks. I was like, not working. Not working well. Yeah. Yeah. But, totally anyway, fair. moving on. Well, and, and I, you know, my MR2 doesn't have anti-lock brakes, but I don't drive it in the snow. I've got my Sabru and it, the ABS has saved me a couple times on that, in that car driving in the snow. Yeah. Um, but, um, but chapter eight is, uh, the coming struggle for safety. So this is Ralph Nader looking forward from 1965 to see what are some of the things on the horizon as far as like regulation and safety. And like what, what we can do be doing or what, uh, how do I, what tense do I put this in? Like what they could have been doing better at the time. And, and one thing that kind of blew my mind is up until 1953, uh, brake fluid was totally unregulated. Nice. And, uh, and 1953, it was only regulated in one state in Minnesota. (laughs) Um, and then by 1961, only half the states had passed laws regulating brake fluid. Uh, and these mostly required conformity with the tolerant SAE minimum standards. And I, I love standardization. And I, <laughs> it's one of the many things I hate about capitalism is the fact that like, it's a fucking free for all. You're just like, can we all use the same shit on some stuff? I mean, come on. Yeah. And I think, you know, like nowadays, most cars use like dot three or four brake fluid. And I think at this point, it was like dot one. It was like the first standard that they ever had. But, uh, it, you know, he has a pretty good explanation of why you want good brake fluid. He was saying that um, uh, many brands of brake fluid at the time came to a boil at dangerously low temperature. Such fluids are called phantom killers by auto automotive experts because under hard stopping conditions, they vaporize leading to total brake failure. 
By the time the damaged vehicle is investigated, the brakes have cooled, the vapor has returned to a fluid state, and the brakes are operable. And, you know, the problem with brake fluid boiling is a vapor can be compressed and a fluid cannot. And hydraulic fluid, uh, hydraulic systems like brakes rely on the fact that you can cannot compress a liquid. Um, you're transmitting force through a liquid. And uh, if, if that, you know, vapor, uh, if that brake fluid turns into a vapor, then you've basically got no brakes. Uh, you, you've got pneumatic brakes in a hydraulic system. Uh, and that doesn't work very well. <laughs> you know, actually, I got to wonder, a part of me can't help but like, wonder how is there even room in the system for it to boil and turn into a vapor like how is there enough room in the system to even have i guess like you can get i guess you can get bubbles in your regular brake fluid yeah you can get air bubbles and and i think we talked about this in a previous episode like brake brake fluid um i think the word is hydroscopic it it absorbs Mm -hmm. water from the air yeah so if there's you know just the the cap is loose on the on the brake fluid reservoir or if there's any kind of little air leak in there and water gets in that will boil a lot at a lot lower temperature than the the brake fluid which is usually Mm. like you know 500 fahrenheit or something yeah so um yeah just a reminder to the listeners you know get your brake fluid flushed you know every couple years or so um because it can it can get grody. Okay, so on the national scale, there was a bill called HR 1341, and this was to establish a uh, federal government agency to uh, set safety standards for motor vehicles uh, that the federal government purchases. So that, like, you know, the government, you know, like the Park Service or whatever buys pickup trucks they would be able to set a standard that the manufacturers would have to, to meet for um, safety. Yeah. So the idea being similar to how like California standards kind of set the standards for everyone in the country, because the manufacturers are like, well, if we have to make them to sell into this market, we have to make them to, we have to make them all like that. Yeah, exactly. Or at least to get started. Like I think he said, you know, the government would be buying around like 30,000 vehicles a year or something like that over the entire federal government. So like that, that w- that's not a huge amount in the grand scheme of like how many cars are being sold. But like it would be a start to get, you know, the, yeah. the car industry to actually move on on safety regulation. So the bill passed the House in 1959 and again in 1962 by large majorities. But the automotive industry managed to block it in the Senate subcommittee on surface transportation. So just another example why the Senate is a undemocratic system, you know, and why lobbying is a stupid thing and amounts to legalized bribery. You know, it was a popular thing enough to to pass in the House, but. And then skipping ahead, this is generally speaking, not about this bill. GM chairman Frederick Donner said about safety equipment, if we were to force on people things they are not prepared to buy, we would face a customer revolt. And I just thought this part was funny. Um, The Medical Tribune, which is like a, you know, doctor journal or whatever, commented, 
It is somewhat difficult to picture a horde of Sankulat customers waving red flags, attacking the castles of General Motors dealers, determined to rip seatbelts, dual braking systems, <laughs> left-hand mirrors, safety <laughs> tires, padded dashboards, etc., out of every car or die in the attempt. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, I love the idea that, like, you know, I don't think people want anything that would prevent the, you know, prevent them dying. Uh, what, you, what, what do you expect? It's like, oh, come on. What are you talking about? <laughs> Oh god! Yeah, yeah, customer revolts. Yeah, like we're walking. The risk is what makes it enjoyable. <laughs> it makes you feel alive when you know you could you could die in a second. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and I'll get into this later, but there was customer demand for like seatbelts and stuff. That was something that people actually did want. So he was uh, kind of full of Whoa, shit. Hold on. Are you saying that the laws of supply and demand didn't seem to apply to this situation? <laughs> yeah. You mean to tell me that manufacturers wouldn't want to do what customers demand and instead would choose to sell something else? Man. Yeah. I, I, you know, I thought like the invisible hand of the market would take care of this. But yeah, that's what I, that's what I was told in I high know. school. I feel like maybe I've missed something. Yeah. I'll have to consult my uh, my macro or microeconomics book again. See what uh, see what it says about these situations. I've got a <laughs> book for you to read. It's it really goes into the intricacies of capitalism. It's all oh. about it. Oh, okay, it's yeah, yeah, it's capital. Shoot, shoot, yeah, okay. Shoot me a shoot me a message. Yeah, later I'll, I'll after. send it over to you. <laughs> it's a real quick read. <laughs> yeah, it's very easy. <laughs> <laughs> very easy reading you're gonna yeah yeah you'll learn a whole lot about linen coats way more than you thought <laughs> written by the super rad dude named kyle max with two x's i think <laughs> oh my god i like that oh, oh that's gotta be a meme now <laughs> kyle max love it so uh so one thing that I guess it says that for years, the tire industry was trying to get motor companies to buy larger tires to avoid overloading the tires. Um, and, <laughs> sure. And basically what overloading means is like the tire manufacturer says, okay, this tire is able to carry, you know, a thousand pounds reliably. And that means you can have a car that weighs 4,000 pounds, you know, but the car companies were taking, you know, tires that were rated for 500 pounds and building like 4,000 pound cars to, <laughs> that would, uh, that would use these tires. And they're like, Hey, come on guys. Like we got to have oh, some I standards. This was here. A I thought this was a scam by the tire companies to make more money, but actually it was a scam by the car companies to cheap out. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Nice. <laughs> I mean, it's not like the tire companies were totally blameless, but in this case they were like, Hey, come on, guys! We got like we have this rating for a reason. Don't just put them on any ass, <laughs> any old car. Like, speaking, uh, of, I, I gotta interrupt. Yeah, I, I don't have to, but I'm going to. <laughs> speaking of ratings on tires, I learned not super recently, but recently enough, because I'd never really paid any attention to treadwear ratings ever until I bought new tires that I got specifically for drifting. Uh huh. And these tires that I got that I thought were like, oh, they have a really high treadwear uh, rating. Uh, they have a very low treadwear rating, actually. The average tire is way fucking higher than I thought. 
Yeah. Um, I thought the average tire was like supposed to be around a hundred, and no, no, the average tire is like four or five hundred. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. so I had no idea. I was like, oh man, these are gonna be like super hard, and I'm like, no, these are like straight up high performance tires that should have that have a very low rating. Yeah. <laughs> Which, I, you know, hey, I'd never paid any attention to it before. You know, I just got yeah. like, oh, those tires. Yeah, that. What can I afford? Okay, those. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, I know I had said at some point I, I when I talked about buying new tires, um, and I was like, yeah, these are going to be super hard and should last forever, which they are lasting forever, but only because I've been drifting in the rain a lot, and also <laughs> they last at track events pretty well. But, um, yeah, they were actually super soft. <laughs> so, anyway, I'm sorry. I just tire no, that's good. got, me, I got mean, me going. That that makes me think, I don't know if the listeners know this, but, like, uh, Treadwear rating is basically like how how long the tire will last and so Under like a regular low... conditions basically exactly yeah yeah and, so this um, is actually yeah this is a good teachable moment yeah. i think it's important to say that i i'm fairly certain that's compared to excuse me tires of the same brand yeah like it is an internal scale to the yeah brand. so and, no, i thought it was i thought it was across everything like i don't yeah, think i don't it know is. I don't think, I, I think it's it's a little bit it's a little bit hazy, and I think I, I, I heard think something each that brand like, does their own testing, so it is sort of internal in that way. Yeah, but like yeah. the idea is it's compared to a 100 treadwear tire, which is like the standard back in whatever fucking decades and decades ago, and now they make them so that they last a lot longer. But like it's like what is it with respect to how would it compare to a 100 treadwear tire? So like a 500 yeah. treadwear tire will last five times as long as a 100 treadwear. And, you know, generally speaking, this isn't always true, but depends on the compound. But the lower the treadwear, the grippier the tire should be. So yeah. it would work really, really well for less time. Whereas yeah. like a high treadwear is going to last forever and ever and ever. And it may not be quite as grippy. But I, I, I realized this at one point when I was looking at the tires on my uh, partner's car. And she's got like a Subaru Crosstrek, so it's nothing special. And I looked at it, it was like hey. 720, and I was like, get the fuck out. Hold on. <laughs> I think I just learned some shit about treadwear that I did not know previously. <laughs> so, yeah. That led to some interesting discoveries. Yeah. And I, I remember hearing someone, maybe it was at a tire shop, say that like the industry is moving away from treadwear and towards a different standard but i don't remember what that is and i didn't look it up so sounds sounds like something they would do to obscure their bullshit but yeah uh yeah funny enough as as someone who drifts uh i know very little about tires because i used to drift exclusively on tires i got out of dealership dumpsters so (laughs) that's not a joke i mean literally i got my used tires out of the dumpsters at dealerships at night and uh so i never paid any attention had no idea So anyway, sorry, back to tire ratings and such. I was going to say, I'm, I might in the near future have 12 used tires for you if you want. <laughs> Various um, sizes and I compounds. Mean, oh, yeah. You're probably not the right size. Shit. What am I thinking? <laughs> I was For a second, I was like, oh, yeah, I could. Maybe we could ship those. And then I'm like, oh, wait, you've got like 14s and shit. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, so like also to throw some shade on the tire industry, at this at this point at least there were no reliable purchasing guides or any law anywhere dealing with tire safety whoa so like 
You mean the market wasn't providing consumers with information they needed to make buying decisions? They they were doing all kinds of marketing that had no basis in reality. Damn, again, I'm going to have to consult my old <laughs> economics textbooks because I feel like basic economics has failed me. Yeah. <laughs> There's this uh, New York State Senator Edward Spencer, or excuse me, Bino, Speno, looked into this. It was his uh, big thing that um, he, he kept getting letters from uh, constituents where they would get like brand new tires that would blow out on the, on the highway. Uh, with like oh, only a thousand miles on them or something. And it says the more he looked into the matter, the more he learned of the inability of tire buyers to know uh, what they are buying. Any quality of tire could be sold. Even those as advertised for $7 and 95 cents as perfect for in city driving. Uh, I don't know what the conversion rate is for seven ninety five to modern dollars, but that doesn't sound like a lot for a yeah, tire. It's gotta be cheap. I would imagine. <laughs> yeah. His legislative committee visited Akron, Ohio, home of the four big, home of four of the big five uh, tire companies in September of 1963. Uh, at a dinner given in the committee's honor by the tire company leaders, Spino proposed the establishment of minimum safety performance standards for new automobile tires. Stunned silence greeted the end of his speech. One dinner guest spilled both his coffee and his after-dinner liqueur onto the man seated to his left. Spino had not only said something no one had ever said before, but it sounded like he meant it. So basically the tire industry is like, we'll totally cooperate with you uh, on writing this bill. And they're like, okay, so we want, you know, standards on like, you know, blowout resistance. Yeah, we can do that. But Come on, man. Like, don't put in these standards on like grip and skidding. And like, I don't think we can really do that right now. <laughs> <laughs> so they worked with him on this legislation, but then, and they're like, okay, this version is really good. We'll totally back this bill if you bring it up. And then he brought it up and they're like, no, fuck this. Who's this guy saying that he has to like regulate our industry. Fuck this guy. <laughs> We've never seen this guy before in our lives. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, that seems pretty familiar if, uh, if you've read on the like, you know, industry regulation type stuff. And there's more of it of like this guy Spino, you know, just fighting against the entire industry and the, them uh, telling him to fuck off basically. There's a few people that were, there's a few like auto industry people that basically told these, you know, like Ralph Nader or Spino or these other people that were trying to enact legislation to, to make things safer. Like, Hey, look, um, the auto industry is a huge portion of the American economy. And, you know, we wouldn't want something to happen to that because like, it would it would have all kinds of downstream effects on the American economy. You know, we, we can't just like um, we can't have that risk to our business. Um, let's see. How did they put it? Uh, General Motors Vice President William Mitchell pointed this up succinctly. The motor car must be exciting and create a desire not to become mere transportation or we will have just utility and people will spend their money for other things such as swimming pools, boats 
hi-fi sets or European vacations. And then Ralph Nader says, or it might be added education, clothes, food, medical care, furniture, housing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And he's basically saying like, hey, we could have public transit for the same amount of money and it would cost less and serve more people and a lot less people would die. But that wouldn't be profitable for these companies, of course. Yeah, that's that's see, that's the trouble. That's, uh, he says uh, there's a there's also the public policy that ignores needs for rapid transit and builds the highways and provides other services that make possible the growth of the automotive sub economy. It is also clear that the manufacturers are increasingly relying upon and encouraging a demand for automobiles, which has little to do with a demand for transportation. So the, the car companies are selling like, uh, you know, the sexy car that'll attract the person that you're attracted to, or like the big truck that can like climb mountains and haul bales of hay or whatever. They're not like, (laughs) but most people aren't using that them for that. It's, it's just transportation. And, uh, you know, there's nothing sexy about trains or buses or whatever. Um, but that's just what people need to get around and it would be a lot better system. Um, maybe I'm projecting some of my own opinions on this, but I think, uh, that's (laughs) part of what Ralph is saying. (laughs) Yeah, I think, uh, makes sense. Um, and then, uh, do we have to wrap up here or should we get onto the, the forward part? Um, let's get on to the forward as long as we can be semi quick. Okay. Um, quick, quick, quick ish, quick adjacent. Sorry. Yeah. I'm not one thing. One thing that I definitely want to uh, get in here. Um, let me open this up. And this this forward, the page numbers are in Roman numerals, which I like. Okay, I understand why they did that because there's no such thing as lowercase numbers. But also, like it's I, I I don't know what the fuck LVI means or whatever. Uh, so one thing that he brings up in this uh, forward that's not mentioned in uh, the chapter on the Corvair is the heating system uh, for the Corvair. And it depends on like the options and the year of the Corvair, but they had two different systems for heating Uh, because it's an air cooled engine. You can't just have a conventional heater. That's like basically a little miniature radiator in your dashboard. Um, So they had what the Volkswagen uh, had at the time, which was a heat exchanger off of the exhaust that would, you know, bring fresh air, pass it over the exhaust, heat it up, and then blow it into the cabin. And the problem with that is if you have any kind of exhaust leak, it'll uh, blow carbon monoxide into the cabin also. Oh, well, well fun gas. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Make, get you ready for bed. <laughs> And this came up in a lawsuit in 1962, Philadelphia attorney Edward Wolf. Let's see. Uh, his client, uh, his client John Petrie, suffered permanent brain damage as a result of driving long distances under such harmful exposures in his 1961 Corvair Greenbrier station wagon. So, I don't know. That's a that's a lot of carbon monoxide to cause permanent brain damage. And of course, General Motors fought this. They offered to settle out of court for one hundred twenty-five thousand dollars, 
but only if Wolf would sell to General Motors all his depositions, all information from expert <laughs> witnesses, his entire file, file, and the car itself. Nice. Um, in addition, Wolf, Petrie, and Wolf's law firm had to sign a statement pledging not to talk, write, or otherwise promulgate facts about the case. All right. Well, in- interestingly, it wound up in the foreword to this book. So <laughs> what happened there? Um, I think it went to trial and they won, but it, I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, um, I'm like, I don't think they settled because, yeah. <laughs> because uh, here we're hearing about it. Yeah. Um, and then the other system they had for the Corvair was a gasoline burner. It under the dashboard and that's exactly what it sounds like it's like a what? little camping stove that would siphon off a little bit of gas from the gas lines and burn it and then have a little heat exchanger to um, heat up the air going into the cabin excuse me that <laughs> sounds completely safe yeah fine. Oh. I'm so you have an... why did they have this little rube goldberg set up and they could just run it off the fucking engine what do you think what well because there's so no lucky. coolant in the engine there's no water in the engine to heat oh, up maybe i missed that part why is there no water in the fo- oh it's, it's air cooled it's air cooled it's like a volkswagen air-cooled. basically anyone who designed anything air cooled that's gulag should exist for people who made air cooled <laughs> engines what the fuck We'll take that air and use it for heat. What the fuck? Well, oh that's, my god. Well, that's what caused the carbon oh, the monoxide, monoxide poisoning. Right, right. Oh man, what a so <laughs> unbelievable. So you kind of fucked Unreal. either way. Oh my and, god, just put some fucking coolant in the boat. It's so easy. <laughs> Why would you do anything else? Yeah. Okay. Anyway, uh, I'm sorry. That's just shocking to me. Well, and beyond just the danger of having an open flame in your dashboard. You know, if this was, if that burner was a little bit, you know, mistuned, it could make carbon monoxide gas that could get in the cabin also. Of course, yeah. So (laughs) you really fucked either way. Like, (laughs) just just don't own a Corvair if you live in a cold climate, I guess. I think don't own a Corvair is probably (laughs) good advice. You don't need, yeah, you don't need that last qualifier there. So I I mentioned planned obsolescence um, and former villain of the show, Alfred P. Sloan, um, said outright, uh, in order to make more people purchase more cars, we build cars so that they will last on the average person four or five years. This provides (laughs) for a greater turnover of automobiles, labor (laughs) and raw materials. Wait, who is Alfred P. Sloan again? Um, he was the head of General Motors in the 1930s. Oh my God! I yeah, I I didn't know that that I I guess I forgot that that quote existed because it is so perfect. Like we've all known about <laughs> engineered obsolescence. If you work on a car, you can discover it pretty easily. But like, holy shit! Yeah, just came out right and said it. And then I'll I'll try and read a little bit longer section. Uh, this is how the foreword opens. And this is about uh, Robert McNamara, who you might remember was also uh, the Secretary of, of Defense, uh, I think, under LBJ, and oh, was one like of a great person to talk to, <laughs> uh, and was one of the the major, uh, I guess, people that you know executed the Vietnam War and did all the you know aerial bombing and all that kind of stuff. Uh, cool dude. 
but before all that, he was an executive at Ford. And um, for Robert Strange McNamara, I, I don't know why his middle name is Strange. Literally Strange, the word Strange. December 1955 was a most difficult, if not bizarre, month. General Motors was trying to get him fired from the Ford Motor Car Company for committing the sin of safety. Earlier that month, a GM executive acting with the approval of the company's chief, Harlow Curtis, had called Walker Williams, Ford's vice president for sales, to express GM's strong disapproval for Ford's safety campaign for its 1956 models. God damn you bastards. We don't want to do safety too. You should back off. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh man. I love competition under capitalism. It's, it's so fucking great. Yeah. GM knew that the Ford cars could not match the newly restyled Chevys. What they were so disturbed about was the heavy promotion of safety options, padding of the instrument panel and seat belts. Uh, by McNamara, then head of the Ford division and clearly heading for the presidency of the entire company. So he had all these safety or excuse me, uh, McNamara had all these marketing campaigns going out to dealers that had pictures of Fords and Chevys of the same year in crashes. So he got um, photographs from like sheriff departments around the country of all these crashes and compared them. See, like, you know, see this, this Ford and this Chevy were in similar accidents and look how fucked up the Chevy is and look how, you know, relatively put together the Ford is, uh, you know, these are much safer. And of course, uh, like, like I said, GM freaked the fuck out. Um, <laughs> yeah. Huh. Interesting. It says, uh, the number one auto giant, uh, general motors was not without friends at, uh, in high places at Ford motor company. Uh, Ford's chairman of the board, Ernest Breach, was formerly GM's chief financial officer. Dale Harder, Ford's head of manufacturing, had held a similar position in General Motors. And Louis Crusoe, executive vice president of the car division, was formerly with the Cadillac division of General Motors. So it's all one big club. And, and they're like, it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's like, hey, uh, hey, um, Dale, could you uh, could you take care of this McNamara guy? He's really, really fucking up with our our sales uh, for the new quarter, you know. And uh, and they did. They they basically demoted McNamara, took him off of this uh, promotion and said, you know, like, you better shape up and put together just a regular ass advertising campaign. Yeah. Um, and then one thing it says is um, they like wildly underestimated the demand for um, for seatbelts at Ford. When, when they first started offering seatbelts as an option, they went to an aircraft supplier to get the seatbelts. And then it says all of a sudden, instead of supplying 50 belts a month or 50 buckles a month, uh, we demanded a thousand buckles a day. <laughs> the result that was that it was impossible for us to supply our dealers with stocks adequate to meet the demand at that time. Oh, no so, shit. So again, there was actual demand for this, but the car companies are like, nah, I don't know about that. <laughs> oh, it's so incredibly dumb. Yeah. These customers are just demanding so much of us. And what are we going to do? Supply it? That's absurd. <laughs> 
And uh, it, you know, it says, oh, fuck. Hold on. Where was it? GM, there's this guy, uh, Dr. Haddon, who is investigating, you know, like whether, whether uh, like three point safety belts, like with a shoulder harness, were an actually good idea with, if it was actually worth it. Uh, GM tried to trick Dr. Haddon with misleading film and information about the hazards of shoulder harnesses. <laughs> this time, under pressure from Secretary of Transportation Alan Boyd, Haddon turned to public sources for help temporarily freezing the standard while publicly pleading for supporting data. Volvo produced a recent, recently completed massive study which showed that out of 28,000 crashes investigated in Sweden, there were zero deaths under 60 miles an hour uh, in crash impacts when the front seat occupants were restrained by the shoulder harness lap belt combination. While there are fatalities at such low speeds as 12 miles per hour for unrestrained <laughs> occupants. Yeah, it seems so, kind of obvious. <laughs> so GM was like, "No, no, these are actually less safe." You know, these shoulder <laughs> harnesses because I don't know they'll choke people, I guess. Uh, and then Volvo's like, "Actually, we have the data to back this up." <laughs> I just thought that was fun. Yeah, kind of reminds me of how Exxon Mobil knew that uh, their products were causing uh, serious damage to uh, climate, and they. Um, their own scientists said so, and then they ran campaigns to convince people that the opposite was true. Yeah. Oh, and, and uh, yeah, like the uh, the whole concept of a uh, carbon footprint was made up by the oil industry <laughs> yep. to, yeah. you know, put the responsibility on us rather than them. You know, it's like, should you really be eating that hamburger? That's like, <laughs> that's a lot of carbon, man. Uh, don't yeah, don't look at those. Uh, don't look at the Gulf of Mexico right now. <laughs> Pretty sure it was BP specifically that did that too. Yeah. So. <laughs> Thanks, British Petroleum. Yep. I've got more, but I'll just leave it with one more thing. In 1970, there was a an idea to create what was called a radar break, and this is basically like radar cruise control that like recently just came out but like a very primitive, like analog version of it um, that basically like if your car was coming up at a, um, you know, stationary object or another car that wasn't moving as fast, instead of rear ending it, it would automatically engage the brakes with a, a radar system. Interesting. Uh, so this was, people were thinking about this and doing prototypes in 1970 and it didn't, you know, enter the mainstream until like 2010 on luxury yeah, cars 10 ish you know <laughs> oh man again a lost opportunity for profits yeah <laughs> um so i could go on but that's i think all the time we have for today and uh we'll we'll get in a little bit more to the uh the life and times of ralph nader and and like i said the the safety car program of the 1970s uh which produce some interesting interesting results but um yeah definitely looking forward to that so yeah it'll be nice but this has been a really fun book to go through for sure because <laughs> this is really fucking ridiculous yeah uh so yeah. yeah i mean like basically while i was reading this i i just kept like um uh, a, a pad of sticky notes and every time I got to a line where it's like, what the fuck? <laughs> I would 
I would tear off a little piece of sticky note and stick it right there. And then, you know, go, I went back later and, and made my notes off of that. So that was like, <laughs> there's, there's a lot of those moments where I'm like, they did all this shit. I, what the fuck? Like they could have <laughs> saved lives, but they didn't. Ah. So oh, yeah, I, I would suggest to the listener, if you can get a copy, uh, it's worth a read. Um, it's a little bit dry in, in parts, but uh, maybe maybe not quite as as dry as uh, Capital. <laughs> I don't think anything's <laughs> quite that dry. <laughs> um, any other thoughts before we uh, wrap up here, guys? Nope. I think that's uh, I think that's a pretty good note. Oh, uh, you know, follow us on social media and stuff. If you aren't already, which you probably are, but uh, if you are already following us on social media. Why don't you go ahead and maybe uh, give our podcast a review? That that helps us, I think. Say nice things about us or sh- and whatever. Maybe other people will listen. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, we appreciate uh, that kind of stuff, though. Yeah, and we've been having fun doing the, the bonus episodes with uh, Turn Leftist and those folks. Um, that's been fun meeting the various uh, different podcasts and stuff. So go and check those guys out if you haven't already. Yeah, it's a good it's a good group of uh it is definitely a good group of shows of like yeah good leftists who aren't suddenly gonna start saying that they're like MAGA chuds or something randomly <laughs> or like come out with like bonkers ass fucking takes or be like, you know what? Vouch is really smart actually. Like, <laughs> it's, it's a lot I of think good... we should team up with the MAGA people and do MAGA <laughs> communism. That's a normal thing that normal people think, right? There are so many like, like leftists. Like I, I see it on Twitter a lot, and you're just like, "What the f- what? What is happening? Just be normal." Oh my god! So yeah, it's a good group of podcasts that we've been fortunate enough to uh, get involved with. That they're all pretty, pretty good. Nothing crazy coming out. <laughs> good yeah. regular leftist folks who I yeah. respect. And uh, a reminder to the the listeners. Uh, you know, every once in a while, I'll go log off, touch grass. Don't don't get in arguments on Twitter. It's not worth it. Yeah, and and you know, question people you like, even us. Yes, I'm sure, we have some bad takes. Just oh, I know we have some bad takes. <laughs> I know what you guys are talking about. I've never had a bad take in my life. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, I guess uh, yeah, I'm I'm good to go. Yeah, let's log off and touch grass, guys. I'm going to touch the yeah. shit out some grass and make it really weird too. It's all <laughs> over it. Okay. Uh, bye. Bye. My calculations are correct. When this baby hits 88 miles per hour, you're going to see some serious shit. When left entirely on its own devices, capitalism foists its diseconomies and its toxicity upon the general public and upon the natural environment. And then it does an interesting thing. It eventually begins to devour itself. If the paladins of corporate America want to know what really threatens our way of life, it's their way of life. It don't matter if you win by an inch or a mile. Winning's winning. Uh, it's important that we examine 
the twin forces behind the Biden candidacy, the billionaires and the Bolsheviks. Ha, 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 ha.